and we're going to turn to the Word of God, to the Book of Psalms, for reasons which I trust will be obvious. We're going to read Psalm 1 and also Psalm 19, the Book of Psalms. Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, but whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And now turning to Psalm 19 where the word of God reveals himself as creator, lawgiver, and redeemer. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day after day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you for that introduction. I wasn't quite sure where it was going to finish. (laughs) As you've just heard, last week we did look at the role of law in the Old Testament. We were looking at the themes with New Testament spectacles on, but the focus of our attention was the Old Testament. This evening I want principally to look at the New Testament, but still in terms of the unity of the Old Testament and the New. We can't look at one in isolation from the other. They both mesh together to present the whole message of God's word. And in turning to the New Testament, we find that the questions that are raised by the law of God are questions that occur, recur, frequently throughout the New Testament. And that's because for the converted Jew, it was imperative to know how the conditions under which God was dealing with him had changed in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Those uh, Christians in the early church who'd come from a Jewish background uh, were perplexed, were seeking to tease out how their relationship to the law of God had changed now that they had become followers of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just the Jewish converts to Christianity who had an interest in the law. It was equally the case with the Gentile converts. Because when they came to Christ, they were presented with the reality of Scripture. And Scripture meant the Old Testament at first. And the Old Testament, as the Word of God, was so very much concerned with matters of law. And so the Gentile Christians also were asking, how does this law of God relate to me now? So the problem that we have in coming to the New Testament is not that we're dealing with something that's on the periphery of New Testament revelation, something that's just got one text here and there connected to it. The problem that we have is the abundance of the evidence. I'm not going to be able tonight to do justice to even half of it. But there are some leading thoughts that I want to bring before you. Because obviously, as we see how the law is presented in the New Testament, we're able to work out how it impinges on our lives now. And the specific question that I was asked to consider was, if love is the fulfillment of the law, then do Christians still need the law? And that is a vital question. Last week we were principally exploring the interface between divine law and salvation. But here we've got posed the relationship between law and love. And there are many today who see the message of Christianity summed up simply in one word, love. And they set love over against law, dismissing law. And saying in the New Testament age, all that we need, the only criterion we need to employ is, is it loving to do this or the other? And I want to get a scriptural 
scriptural orientation on the matter by considering first Jesus' teaching regarding the law and then Paul's. I'm doing it that way. I don't think there's any contradiction at all between them, but they certainly look at the matters from a somewhat different angle. They come together, Jesus and Paul. It's not two separate messages, but still it's useful to build it up in that way. So firstly then, Jesus' teaching regarding the law. If you're looking for the word law in the Gospels, you have to look pretty hard. The word law doesn't occur in the Gospel of Mark at all. It only occurs eight times in Matthew's Gospel and nine times in Luke. And most of those references are not to the law as commandment, but rather in the Jewish usage to the law as a way of referring to the five books of Moses. But then if you look a little bit closer, although the word doesn't occur, divine law and commandment, the controlling influence of the Old Testament word of divine revelation and command, are everywhere present in Jesus' teaching. The gospel records show, they show conclusively, that Jesus regarded the Old Testament as the inspired word of God, and he regarded God's law, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, as the divinely given rule of life. Jesus himself obeyed the injunctions of the law, and he urged others to do so also. We can see that, the extent to which he took that, in the way in which he even paid the half-shekel temple tax in Matthew 17. We can see it in the way he castigated the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites for neglecting the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23, 23. And even in the matters of the ceremonial law, our Lord was careful. Think of the care he took to, as regards the arrangements for the Passover in the final week before his death. Jesus never criticized the Old Testament. He never sought to subvert its authority. And we must be suspicious of any teaching that seeks to drive a wedge between our Lord's attitude to the law and the attitude that should characterize those who say they're following him. Now in Jesus' teaching, indeed throughout the whole of the New Testament, the word law is used in a variety of ways. Jesus can talk about the law and the prophets prophesying until John. And their law is referring to God's authoritatively declared word. Law and prophets, the law, is referring to the revelation given through Moses. It's not so much law as command, but it reflects the Jewish use of law as revelation, law as scripture. The law sums up the whole covenantal disposition that was instituted by Moses. And Jesus said... The law and the prophets prophesied until John. But now with John the Baptist, there has started a new era. 
a new era that began with the coming and the ministry of John. It is the era of messianic salvation. And in this new order, the relationship between God and his people is no longer mediated through the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. It is mediated through the person of Jesus himself. The whole Old Testament revelation was divinely directed towards him, focused on him, and found its fulfillment in him. But Jesus still saw his mission as accomplishing the fulfillment of the true intent of the law. Jesus' main body of ethical teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. We've gathered there what Jesus taught his disciples regarding the significance of being a member of the kingdom of heaven, that the significance of that in terms of the way they should live. And right at the beginning of that major address, Jesus sets out how those in the kingdom should live. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the verb translated to fulfill them, it might mean to establish them, to confirm them. It's not used that way in the Septuagint, the the Old Testament translated into Greek, 200 BC. But it's possible to argue that it just means, I have come to confirm them. And if fulfill was merely a matter of confirmation, it would be Jesus saying, the law is permanent and I'm also going to obey it. But when you look not just at that passage, but at the rest of Jesus' teaching, fulfill is not just confirmation. In the language of the New Testament, fulfill has dynamic connotations. Jesus is saying, I am going to bring the law to its full intent, its ultimate realization, its proper expression. He's not saying I'm leaving it quite where it was. He's not saying I'm just rubber stamping it or signing my name to it as if it were some treaty or other. He's saying I am here to fulfill. I am here to take what already has been revealed and move it forward, not denying it, but bringing it to perfection. Now, how did he do that? Well, he firstly did that by speaking with an authority, not just equal to the law, but an authority that was above the law. It is one of the remarkable features of Jesus' ministry that he didn't speak in the mode of the Jewish rabbi, and he didn't speak in the mode of the Old Testament prophet. The rabbis who were teaching in Christ's day in Palestine, whenever you asked them a question, 
Perhaps they were rather like Scotsmen. They never told you what they thought. They told you what all the rabbis before them had thought. The standard rabbinic reply to a question, especially an awkward question, was Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that. Rabbinic teaching hid behind the rabbis who'd gone before. Prophetic teaching from the Old Testament began with, thus says the Lord. The prophet acknowledged his status as a spokesman, as a channel. I have heard from the Lord and I now reveal to you what the Lord God himself has said. Jesus did not speak or teach using either of those models. He said, but I say unto you. Or even more typically, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say unto you. He came with a voice of authority. He came presenting himself as the voice, the standard for his own people to listen to. And on the authority of what he himself said, Jesus rejected the prevailing interpretation of the law that was presented by the scribes. The interpretation of the scribes was considered by everyone in Jesus' day as as authoritative as the word of God itself. But Jesus, using his mediatorial authority, reinterpreted and refocused the law because of the impact of his coming, because of the breaking in of the new age. He said things have changed in many ways. He declared, for instance, that a person could not be defiled by food. He thereby declared all food clean in Mark chapter 7. That was Jesus exercising his own authority to bring to an end the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. He set aside the principle of ceremonial purity embodied in so much of the Mosaic legislation. But Jesus never set aside the moral law. Far from it. He warned against disparaging any of the least of the commands in the law. In Matthew 5.19. When Jesus was approached by, by the rich man. Who wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. Jesus quoted the Decalogue. Quoted six of the commandments. He was in effect saying, if you want to know what goodness really is, if you want to know what a life that pleases God is shaped in terms of, look at those commands. They tell you. Though the commands, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are God's standards. And Jesus treated them as still valid. But he emphasized what so many people had begun to forget. That more was needed than outward conformity to the letter of the law. He emphasized the need for heart conformity to what the law was saying. There needed to be an inner surrender of one's life to God. There needed to be a total and unequivocal surrender. And Jesus was saying, I've come to solve the problem of those who haven't surrendered 
of those who find they're unable to keep this perfect law perfectly. He said, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I haven't come to call those who think they know it all and have done it all, but those who, when they face up to the reality of the searching demands of God's law, realize how far short they have fallen. And that's why Jesus emphasized the searching nature of the law's inner demands. In the Sermon on the Mount, he sets out the ethical standards of the kingdom of heaven. It's no longer just to be a matter of outward conformity. That satisfied them those of old. They thought, I haven't murdered, so the commandment doesn't apply to me in any condemnatory way at all. But Jesus showed what the law had always intended to show. That it was the inner heart motivation. It was the inner molding of an individual's thinking, desires that really mattered. And he showed, you may say, well, I've never murdered. But he showed that the same problem arose with the anger that arises within. He looked at those who say, well, I haven't committed adultery. And he said, ah, but it's the same matter when lustful desire arises, even mentally. This is not a code of law imposed from without. No regime can legislate for inner conduct. But a citizen of the kingdom requires inner conformity to the demands of the law. And this can only be done by the heart that is suffused and controlled by love. We saw a picture of that to some extent in Psalm 1 that was read earlier. There's one feature of Psalm 1, well it's actually Psalm 1 in in comparison to Psalm 2 that I'd like to draw your attention to. In Psalm 1, we have the picture of the man who is quietly meditating. In verse 2, on his law he meditates day and night. And it's actually the same word that's used in verse 2, in Psalm 2, of the people's plot in vain. The word meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2 is the same word as Psalm 2 verse 1, plot. It's basically a word that means to be quietly making a sound, to be whispering over something. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't read quietly. Silent reading wasn't invented. (laughs) There's a story told of Augustine of Hippo who once went to visit his friend Ambrose, Ambrose, who was Bishop of Milan. And Ambrose was in bed with a heavy cold. And he said to to, to Augustine when he came in, here I am in bed with a cold and I can't even read my manuscripts. Because the only way they could read was by mouthing the words, quietly whispering them over to themselves. Helps a lot when there's no spaces between the words. 
and you try and work out where one word stops and the next word begins by mouthing them. Here in Psalm 1, there's the picture of the man who is quietly reading over to himself God's law day and night, contrasted with the picture in Psalm 2 of another group quietly whispering, but whispering rebellion in a corner. And that brings us to the role that law law plays in the life of the individual. The picture of those two psalms is a picture that still applies. There are those who... I'm afraid I'm used to Scottish pulpits. And they're a bit bigger. (laughs) I've often wanted to tell George that. (laughs) The one who has come into the kingdom is the one who is found quietly whispering God's word to himself, the law, because the law is revealing to him what his creator, what his God, his savior, wants of him. It is the attitude not of rebellion, but of love. And love plays an essential role in the life of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demands love with an exclusiveness, which means that all the other commands of the law lead up to it. All righteousness finds its norm in it. Now, love is a matter of will and action. Love involves basing one's whole being in God. It involves committing oneself to him with unreserved confidence and leaving with him all the care and responsibility. Real obedience to God and Christ is nothing more and nothing less than the exercise of love and the directing of love towards all that God has commanded We often make a distinction between internal and external obedience. Somebody doing something because of the fear of penalty and somebody doing something because it wells up from within them. All true obedience is eternal, is internal. All true obedience consists in the exercise of love. And the external act to be of any validity, to be of any, to be in any way pleasing to God has to be of the same essence as the internal disposition of the one who acts. And so Jesus said to those who asked him, what is this law all about? What's the most important aspect? And he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In pointing to love, he was pointing to the need for the appropriate inner disposition. And that love 
flows out and expresses itself in the way that God requires in his commands. I was told you were all here last week, but just in case you weren't, I'm going to give the illustration that I like about Cadbury's milk tray yet again. (laughs) Because I think it sums it up. That series of advertisements had someone performing all sorts of actions of bravery and valor to bring to the lady whom he was in love with this box of Cadbury's milk tray. No one can doubt the commitment of the man who did it. But commitment and love without the knowledge that the lady actually likes milk tray, can go terribly wrong. (laughs) And it's the same with the heart that is seeking to live a life of responsive gratitude to God. The inner feeling may be there, the desire to please may be there, but if there isn't the knowledge of what God actually wants, the whole enterprise can go horribly wrong. Jesus said, in no way disparaging the law of the Old Testament, love is primary. Love is the motive. Love is what impels the one who has been saved by God to act. But the knowledge of how to act comes from the word of truth. And can I pick up on something else I mentioned last week? And that is that in Jesus himself, the believer has the privilege not only of seeing the law revealed and commanded, but the privilege of seeing the law revealed and lived out in the life of one perfectly. It's not just that Jesus comes and says, here are another set of precepts. He presents a living example. Can I put it to you this way? And I'm thinking particularly of those who want to telling us, oh, if you love's all that matters. We don't want this law. We Christ said it's love to God, love to your neighbor, that's all that matters. If there ever was an individual that might have been reckoned competent to live on the basis of love apart from law, that individual was Jesus Christ himself. If there was ever anyone who was going to manage to live on earth simply in terms of love, he is the one who would have managed it. But listen to the testimony he bears regarding himself in John's Gospel in chapter 12 at the very end. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Christ presents himself as the one who has been commanded as the one whose love towards the Father has a response that is structured 
in terms of what the Father has said to him, what the Father has commissioned him to do. It is an alliance of inner commitment and knowledge, revealed knowledge from God himself. And it is that same alliance that we are to look for. It is that same alliance that is presented to us as a standard to strive towards. What then can we, how then can we sum up Christ's attitude to the law? Firstly, the law is not to be ignored. Matthew 5.19 Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law is not to be ignored. But secondly, Christ is greater than the law. By his ministry, he brought the Mosaic era to an end. By his authority, he sets aside commands that were relevant only to that age, the ceremonial law. He is the one who says, I, the mediator of the kingdom of heaven, am now the ultimate authority. But he thirdly also says, I endorse the core values of God's Old Testament revelation, the moral law. I don't set it aside. I reinforce it. I live it and I present it to others as the standard of perfect goodness. And he makes it undoubtedly and absolutely clear that it's only in the spirit of love that the divine norms of the moral law can properly be observed. Now, if we move on to look at what Paul says, we come at someone, come to someone who's looking at the law in a different way. Christ, in looking at the law, was always speaking with authority and pointing to himself. Paul is the apostle trying to make sense of law when he himself is one who is under law. And it's not surprising that many people have concluded that Paul says the Christian has nothing to do with law. In Romans chapter 7 he says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And so people say, isn't Paul Paul arguing? This spirit-led life replaces the old written law code. Isn't he saying, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit? It's not just there. Romans chapter 10, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And there are many who say, well, That means the law has ended, full stop. It's come to an absolute terminus. And there are the words also in Romans 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so there are those who would argue 
that in place of a life regulated by the law of God, Paul views the Christian, the Christian's behavior, as controlled by love and informed by the Spirit as to how to behave. Now, those are essential features of Paul's message. Paul does not play down the significance of love, and he emphasizes very much more clearly the significance of the Spirit in the inner life of the believer. But to say that Paul has abrogated the law doesn't do justice in any way to the full message that he presents. We notice there, for instance, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's not has abolished the law or rendered the law obsolete. It's the same word we saw earlier in connection with Jesus himself, who had come to fulfill. Has the one who loves another, has moved the law forward from mere outward conformity into true realization. It's not the law being abandoned, but the law being given its proper place. Oh yes, there are many passages, many other passages than those three I've just mentioned in Romans where Paul speaks negatively of the law, where he speaks of it as something outmoded and ended for Christians. But that's not the whole of Paul's teaching. Paul uses the word law 119 times in his letters. Same number of times as the Psalm 119 in the Old Testament that speaks so approvingly of the law. But on none of those occasions... Does Paul use the word in the plural? Every time he talks about the law, it's the law in the singular. That means that Paul characteristically thinks of law as a unity, as an organized system which sets the parameters for conduct. And most often the organized system that Paul has in mind is what God gave through Moses at Sinai. Paul wasn't thinking so much of specific aspects of uh, the, the law of the Old Testament. And he certainly wasn't trying to compare particular precepts with the laws of other nations. When Paul talks about law, he's thinking of the total system of ordinances of the Mosaic era. He talks of the law as having entered in Romans 5. There was a time when the law in Paul's particular sense started. It was added. Added years after the Abrahamic promises. He mentions that in Galatians 3. He specifically says the law came through Moses. And having this law was the privilege of the Jews. It marked them off from the rest of the world. Indeed, Paul saw this law as a barrier separating the Jew and Gentile, an exclusive privilege of Israel, which in some sense had to be removed if unity was going to be attained in the church. Paul called the law the dividing wall of hostility, which Christ removed by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. And you'd say, abolishing the law? Of commandments and ordinances. 
Surely that's just saying the same thing as no law anymore. But no. When Paul speaks of the believer as not being under law, but under grace, he is primarily making the point that the believer is no longer living under the dispensation of Moses. He's looking back, he's seeing the Old Testament law, and he's saying, you're no longer under it. He is repudiating the Jewish consensus of his day, that what God required of an individual was works conforming to the demands of the law. If an individual did what the law commanded, he would gain for himself a right standing before God. Justification by works righteousness. And Paul was determined to show that that was totally out of place in the message of the gospel. If a law could have been given which would have allowed an individual to come before God and demand acceptance because the individual had kept that law, Paul says, yes, there would have been a law for that, of that sort. But the law couldn't open up a way for an individual to come before God and say, I've got the right to salvation, I've done this, that and t'other. It couldn't, not because of anything wrong with the law, not because of anything wrong with the standards of God's holiness and purity. The law was unable to do it because of human weakness. The problem was not on the side of the law, the problem was on our side. We haven't kept it, we can't keep it. And Paul says, we don't need to keep it in that sense anymore because the believer is under grace. The believer's standing before God is not on the basis of human achievement. It is on the basis of what has been achieved by Jesus Christ. Not under the law means under grace in the sense that another has provided for me. Another has met the demands that I had to pay. And therefore my standing is based not on my capacity but on his. But Paul does not go on to say that means there's no longer any obligation to consider the moral law. He does not go on to say that means the moral law has gone out the window. Not under law means not under the impossible burden of keeping the law in order to be saved but it still leaves room for a role for law in Paul's thinking Paul harks back to the law as defining the content of the new obedience that should characterize those in Christ he uses the law to express the will of God for the new life. Romans 8. God has done what the law. Weakened by the flesh. Could not do. By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous. Requirement of the law. Might be fulfilled in us. Who walk. Not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. 
love does not function as a new Christian norm in Paul's thinking, which comes in place of the law and renders it obsolete. Love sums up the law. Love is the motivation. It's vital to get this structure clear. Love is the essential motivation. If there is no love, law-keeping is external, it is cold, it is heartless, it is a source of condemnation. But the impulse of love from a heart suffused with gratitude and devotion to God for his grace finds its expression in what God has revealed, I like. The moral law is the abiding revelation of what God is in himself and what he requires from everyone, everywhere. Paul himself doesn't talk about the ceremonial law. That's a term that theologians invented later. But he does very clearly echo the teaching of Jesus in regard to it. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2, he dismisses questions of food and drink or festivals and new moon and Sabbaths as shadows of things to come. Paul says Christ our, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And it's quite clear from that that he viewed the sacrificial law of Moses as coming to an end in Jesus Christ. But there's still a very clear sense in which law and commandment remain. It's the moral law that Paul principally has in mind when he calls the law holy in Romans 7 and the commandment holy and righteous and good. He's clear that it needs a heart filled with love towards God and mankind to enter into wholehearted obedience to the law. And such love is only there through the inworking of the Holy Spirit. Just as there's no disjunction, no separation between love and keeping the requirements of the law, so there's no antithesis between walking in the Spirit and observing how God wants us to live in terms of his law. Permitting oneself to be led by the Spirit consists in learning afresh to discern and prove what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Christ is the end of the law, but he's the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone who believes. The law is no longer presented as the way in which one can gain a right standing before God. Christ has brought that to an end, and in its place there is now the demand for faith. There is now the demand for trust in him, in Christ himself. And the Spirit, by bringing about a new bond to the law in the heart of the believer, presents the roadmap for a lifestyle that pleases God. Do we overthrow the law by faith? By no means, says Paul. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We establish the law. Those who have been saved have an additional obligation to obey the law because of the new and powerful motive 
reflecting their knowledge of God's love towards them and reflecting the inworking of the Spirit in their hearts. Our moral obligation to God has been strengthened, not weakened. And so we can use the law not simply to test ourselves and teach ourselves, but we can also use the law to test society and do it in a way that is sensitive to what God wants to see. Not only was Psalm 1 read there, but Psalm 19 was read. And I can never hear Psalm 19 read without recalling a comment that Derek Kidner makes in his Tyndale Old Testament commentary on the Psalms. Because the psalmist prays to God that he would keep him free from secret faults. And Kidner says, perhaps one of our greatest weaknesses is to think that secret faults are something small and trivial. Some things that are secret and hidden because they are in themselves so small that they escape notice. He argues instead that secret faults can be things that are so great. They are so all-encompassing that we never, in the fabric of our society, that we never realize they're there at all. In a society that is as warped as our society today, people take things for granted. People take for granted things that everyone else does. This just must be the way people should live. And it's so easy for us, even though we have a commitment to the Lord, it's so easy for us to be affected by the pressures of society around us. It's so easy for us to fall in unthinkingly, unreflectingly, into the mold and pattern of our day. But one of the main uses of the law of God's standard the law that God has presented to say, this is what I want to see, is the challenge to test not just the inward thoughts of our own minds and thinking, but the big structures of life in our society. Things that are so massive that perhaps we we just ordinarily live accepting them, that this is the way things are. They too have to conform. They too are liable to be hidden from the scrutiny that so often is the case. And that's one of the ways in which Psalm 19, with its two parts, hangs together. There's many other connections. But one is, in the first part, the psalmist is saying, there's nothing remains hidden from the heat of the sun. There's nothing that can escape the influence of the sun in the natural realm. And so too it's the case that there is nothing in the moral, the spiritual, the social, the political realm that should escape the influence and scrutiny of the standard of God's law. There's one other area I want just to mention. That's why I'm checking up. Jesus and the apostles uphold the law. But it's the law 
as Christ has freed it from the circumstances and the conditions that applied only in the time of Moses. There are many aspects of the Old Testament rules and regulations that are no longer appropriate for the age of the New Covenant. We now live in the age when the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ has been made, when right standing before God comes to those who trust in Christ to provide them with that right standing. And so we've got the question, how are we to discern in the law of Moses what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God? God has given the church the ongoing task in each and every generation to use the resources of Scripture in the power and by the enlightenment of the Spirit to articulate, define, and present his good and acceptable and perfect will. I'm told that subsequent addresses are going to consider the the impact and application of, of each of the Ten Commandments. How it is that the Decalogue can be worked out today. But that leaves a great many verses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And I'm wanting just to say a little bit about the other verses just now. Uh, You're going to hear separate ones in each of the main ten. I want just to look for a moment at the other ones. The way in which the other Mosaic laws are to be thought of as still functioning has been a matter of considerable controversy in reform circles in recent years. I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow account of who said what or who thought this. But I want to present a way, it's not my way, others have worked it out, a way that I think is helpful in dealing with these matters. In the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, we have God's policy prescriptions for human behavior. They are the essential principles that are to inform human conduct and the conduct of his people. But principles are very general statements, inevitably. The task is to translate the principles into far more specific policies so that we can implement them in daily life. For the ancient Israelites, in their confused situation when they came out of Egypt, God provided authoritative, worked-out examples so that they could be guided in how they were to go about applying the Decalogue in the particular situation of their lives. The examples are not comprehensive. Not every aspect of the life of the community was covered, and some areas were covered in far greater detail than others. But in the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God was essentially saying to Israel, this is the detail of the way in which you are to go about living as my people. And it's essentially the same situation we face still. Oh, we're not living in the same cultural environment. We're not living in the same socio-political setup as ancient Israel. 
And more especially, we're not living at the same stage of the unfolding of the divine plan of salvation. We therefore can't simply take these laws out of the Old Testament and say they apply absolutely today. Let's take a simple example. This is one that there's general agreement about. The laws concerning sacrifice, the festivals, the priesthood, the sanctuary, they were divine revelation that was designed to teach Israel about the atoning work of the great high priest who would come. They weren't discarded by Christ. They were fulfilled by him. He was the great high priest. The work they foreshadowed, he did. And so all those regulations are no longer applicable. But that doesn't mean that they're devoid of teaching for us. This is how God taught his people when they were in the primary class, they were in the elementary class at school. And it still can be profitable to trace out the pattern of Christ and his work in the ordinances of old. It can still be very profitable in the light of what's been done in Christ to look back and say, ah yes, now we can see how God was teaching the people. These were the lessons they should have been learning. And then there are the food and dietary laws decisively set aside by Christ. And many of those regulations didn't involve abiding ethical principles. That's seen very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who's within your town, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Israel was permitted to give meat, animal meat that uh, came from animals that had dropped down dead, was permitted to give it to aliens, to sell it as food, but they weren't permitted to eat it themselves. Now obviously eating such meat was not morally wrong, otherwise God wouldn't have said, uh, you can sell it to the foreigner. But it was wrong for God's people at that time. They were part, this was part of the special regulation that God had instituted in Israel as the people set apart, the holy people devoted to himself. And many of the restrictions that you find in the rest of the law were imposed on them to remind them of their special status. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. I often ask my students, uh, would you be left with anything on if we enforced that rule just now? (laughs) You shall make for yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. What's at stake here? What's God talking about? Primarily, he was saying to Israel, you have to be different. They were being taught to stand apart from the world around them. If I can continue the metaphor I used of this being primary school, they're being told, wear school uniform. Wear school uniform because that's a way of showing whose you are. You're going to be different. But what does that mean to us nowadays? Well, there's a basic principle still there. The people of the God should not be conformed to the way of the world. 
they should be transformed into those who are different in the way that God wants them to be different. It's not now a matter of outward signs and symbols, outward restrictions. It's a matter of inner heart dedication, evidenced in God-honoring living. Now, that example shows what I'm trying to get at. If you're looking at these particular injunctions in the Old Testament, you ask, what principle was God teaching in this particular example? Perhaps it was an aspect of one of the Ten Commandments. Perhaps it was a spiritual truth. Perhaps it was an anticipation of the final work of Christ. We have to ask, what was it that God was teaching Israel? We have to isolate the general principle, and not just in terms of our own culture and society, but in terms of where we are located now after the death and resurrection of Christ, we're to ask, how does that principle apply today? Various authors use different terms for this. The Westminster Confession talked about the general equity of these laws, the lawmaker's intention in giving them. Others talk about intermediate axioms or derived moral principles. These moral principles aren't to be made absolute. It's only scripture that's absolute and unchanging. But God has left us with the task in each and every generation of working out for ourselves how the principles that are here apply. While we're still on earth, we're not yet made perfect. There's possibility of error in our thinking. Especially there's the possibility of incompleteness. New circumstances can arise in the next generation that make the previous generation's formulation of the underlying paradigm, the basic principle, perhaps less than adequate. We're to keep on scrutinizing. And sometimes we'll find there treasures that are hidden. If Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.9 had not cited Deuteronomy 25.4, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, whoever would have thought of applying that to the principle of how you pay a Christian pastor and teacher? It's not ceremonial law as such. It pertains more to the socio-political laws that were to govern Israel's behavior in ordinary life. And Paul was saying the law doesn't apply directly. He wasn't telling the Corinthians how to tread out grain, how to harvest their crops. But he's saying, look, there's a basic principle there. If you think about what's being said there, God was teaching the Israelites something. Teaching them that effort be appropriately rewarded. And Paul was saying, look, that's an example, that's a paradigm. There's an analogy in there. The underlying principle can be made to apply to other situations. Consider again the well-known example of Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Now, one of the spokesmen for theonomy, 
the, the group that was arguing for the abiding validity of the law in all its detail, was once challenged regarding Deuteronomy 22.8. Somebody stood up at the end, don't try this, and said, does the roof of your house have a parapet? And the man was forced to concede, no, but there's a fence around my swimming pool. (laughs) In doing that, he effectively undermined his own point of view, but at the same time, he got it just right. There was an abiding principle. It's an application of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. It's not just the one who takes up the knife and stabs another who murders. The basic principle involves due concern for the potential loss of life of others. The rooftops in Palestine were flat. They were used as the place where the family ate the evening meal, where you entertain friends. And if there wasn't some structure around the edge, someone could very readily fall off and be killed. It's the same idea that really gives the scriptural basis for all building control regulations. That structures have to be built that are safe against reasonably foreseeable uh, incidents. So the theonomist, talking about the safety fence around his swimming pool, obviously it must have been an outdoor swimming pool, we're in an American setting, um, was complying with the spirit, the basic principle of the law, while disregarding the letter. It's the principle that matters. Or you might think of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. You have to look at the footnote to work out what an ephah and a hin are. But the basic principle, well, that underlies weights and measures regulations, trading standards regulations, honesty in the marketplace. There are other passages that present greater challenges to the expositor. I've mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21, uh, the regulation about animals that fall down dead. But the verse ends, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's also found in Exodus 23, 19, so it was obviously a current issue. But it takes us a great deal of effort to work out what that current issue was. The best explanation I've come across is that it's referring to a Canaanite practice uh, associated with some of their agricultural festivals. And that what's being said here is Israel are being commanded not to follow a pagan practice that would undermine their distinctive lifestyle as God's devoted people. We have to work our way through them all. And if we have the right information we can find the way God taught the people of old. We can identify the principles that lay behind that. There's a variety. And we can then see how those might apply to the varying circumstances of life. Let's, in conclusion, hear the words of the Apostle James in chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Four thoughts, briefly, in conclusion. It's the royal law. Doesn't mean a law for kings. Doesn't mean the king of the laws. It means the law that comes from a king, namely Christ himself. It is the law of the great king, invested with his authority, given to shape the loyal and grateful response of his people. It is the royal law. It is the law of love. The response of the heart motivated by love and seeing the king's requirement as the expression of love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. But it is the law of love that is particularized and exemplified by the Ten Commandments. James, to make clear what he's talking about in you shall love your neighbor, goes to the Ten Commandments, focuses on God's moral law. Like Jesus, like Paul, James gives content to the response of love by citing the Decalogue. But it is supremely the law of liberty. And this reality set against the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, God's moral law will be the standard of scrutiny for all mankind because it applies to all. What then is the law of liberty? Is it a second set of standards that God's going to apply to those who are his people? No, there's one standard, the moral law. The moral law that condemns all because it says none is righteous. The law of liberty doesn't vary the standard, but receives them as the royal law of Christ. Given not to those who are under law trying to work out their own salvation, but to those who have been called as free men and free women into the kingdom of heaven, and they are to live the way their God wants them to, liberated from the thraldom of sin, free to please him who proclaims liberty to the captives. The law of liberty is the law of the freed person responding willingly through the inworking of the Spirit to the wonder of the God who has given us salvation. The royal law is the law of love, the law of love that is exemplified by the Ten Commandments, but the law which, through the inworking of the Spirit, leads to the free and willing response of God's people. It's a willing people who come to him in the day of his power. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Mackay. Can we have a a brief break just to formulate some 
thoughts and questions in our minds. Very clear from what you said that we should not have been just having meetings for five weeks. It ought to have been for 50 weeks. Uh, uh, and there's clearly more to come. Maybe that's a thought for another year. They, uh, we have meetings uh, 52 weeks. I know you. On the first day of the week. And we're, we're coming to that. <laughs> the Lord's Day. Let's use it. Indeed. There's a, a theme for later in our series. Anyway, just for a, a few seconds, let's, uh, if you want to stretch your legs, don't go out of the room because it's not really practical that. And then we'll take some questions. As conscious last week, in terms of the question time, it's important to do two things. First of all, to speak into the microphone, which picks up the question. But even more important, for those in outer darkness at the far side, they can hear what's being asked. So you've got to do two things, speak clearly into the microphone and sufficiently clearly and loudly to be heard. That applies to you as well, Frank. Okay. Right. Anyone like to ask question number one? Um, referring to Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, Paul is obviously seeking guidance for the new Gentile Christians. I wondered why uh, James and the others um, at the council said that um, the new Christians had to abstain from things strangled and blood uh, as well as um, avoiding sexual immorality. Um, I just wondered uh, why these new Christians were having to continue a dietary I don't think people out there heard. Acts 15. Look that up. (laughs) Acts 15. A question about Acts 15 and why Paul said what he did. Why the council said what? Yep. (sighs) Is that a difficult? No, I'm not sure that I've got the final answer to it, but my understanding is that these were requirements that were, had uh, been developed for those who were associate, those from the Gentile background who were associating with the synagogue rather than becoming full mm, proselytes. You're right to emphasize that from what has been strangled is rather unusual there. The other requirements go back very much to the time of Noah, to the Noachic Covenant, and they set uh, basic parameters that were seen to be uh, not specifically Jewish, but something that was, should be true for all peoples. From things strangled, yes, I grant you that that seems to be very much part of the Jewish law. I am more hesitant in answering that part but I suspect that it certainly was the case that those who came to be uh, hearers at the synagogue, uh, but who weren't prepared, particularly men who weren't prepared to be circumcised and didn't enter fully into uh, the Jewish rites and ritual, this was something that was particularly offensive. I think it is more to do with 
Offense it would cause to others who viewed it as something reprehensible rather than something that is fundamentally um, debarred by Scripture. So it's an exercise both of things that are abominations to God and uh, of, in that item, I would suspect, uh, showing sensitivity towards those from a Jewish Christian background as distinct from a Gentile one. That's the understanding.